So, Senator Sass, New York and Virginia have been in the news recently for pushing extreme abortion laws. Do you think this is a turning point for the pro-life movement in this country? Uh, I have always believed uh, that the pro-life movement is ultimately going to win. Hey, guys. This is J.D. Flynn. You're listening to CNA Newsroom. That was CNA's Christine Roussel talking last week with Senator Ben Sass about the way that abortion has, in the past few weeks, just exploded into headlines across our country. Senator Sass led a charge this week in the Senate to ensure that babies who survive abortions have the right to medical care. Ultimately, though, his measure was blocked on the Senate floor. Controversy around abortion has been in the headlines since a New York law passed on January 22nd, dramatically expanding legal protection for abortion in that state. The debate then moved to Virginia, where a law was being considered last week that would have allowed abortion up to the time of birth in some circumstances. The bill is tabled for now. If it is eventually passed, it would remove a required 24-hour waiting period for abortion. Second trimester abortions would not be required to take place in a hospital. Virginia law would no longer require three doctors to sign off on a third trimester abortion. It would require only one. The bill would also introduce broader definitions of threats to a mother's mental or physical health, ultimately permitting abortion in more circumstances and later in pregnancy, much later. Virginia's Governor Ralph Northam and some Virginia legislators prompted a major controversy during debate over the bill when they seemed to defend even allowing children who survive abortion attempts to die. Here's Kathy Tran, a Democratic member of the Virginia House of Delegates, introducing her bill, HB 2491. She's being questioned by Todd Gilbert, a Republican and a fellow delegate. So how late in the third trimester would you be able to to do that? You know, it's very unfortunate that our physicians, uh, witnesses, were not able to attend today to speak specifically. No, no, I'm talking about your bill. How late late in the third trimester could a, a physician perform an abortion if he indicated it would impair the mental health of the of the woman? Or physical health. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm um, talking about the mental health. So, I mean, through the third trimester. The third trimester goes all the way up to 40 weeks. Okay. But to the end of the third trimester. Yep. I don't think we have a limit in the bill. So, um, where it's obvious that a woman is about to give birth, she has physical signs of, of, that she is about to give a birth. Would that still be a point at which she could request an abortion if she was so certified? She's dilating. Uh, Mr. Chairman, that would be a, you know, a decision that the doctor, the physician, and the woman I understand would make that. I'm that asking point. if your bill allows that. My bill would allow that, yes. And here's Virginia Governor Ralph Northam defending her bill. If a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly uh, what would happen. Um, The infant would be delivered. Uh, The infant would be kept comfortable. Uh, The infant would be resuscitated if if that's what the uh, mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. We will be talking about abortion and the controversy of the past few weeks this entire episode. We'll talk with two women who share the stories of their own extremely difficult pregnancies, the choices they faced and the pressures they faced, and we'll hear from Bishop Thomas Daly of Spokane. But first, here's more of Christine and Senator Sass. The pro-life movement, a movement that I grew up in, my mom had me praying outside abortion clinics uh, with people from our church and her her Bible study and women's groups uh, when I was a kid. So I I grew up in this movement. Um, The pro-life movement is getting younger and younger and younger. And the reason that's happening is because sonogram technologies uh, and all the images we're seeing of what happens in a mom's tummy uh, are just persuading the most image-saturated generations of the obvious truth that these babies 
these are babies uh, and that they have dignity. So I, I think that the pro-life movement is ascendant, and I think the more pictures people see of babies at 30 weeks of gestation and 25 weeks of gestation and 20 weeks of gestation, and so I, I think this movement is, is ultimately going to win, and I don't think it mostly is going to come through politics. Uh, I obviously believe that the legislative pathways are really important, um, but the most important parts of this movement are about love and about persuasion and about science. The pro-life movement is pro-woman, it's pro-science, and it's pro-love. So that's the most important thing. But at the legislative level, um, you have uh, a bunch of pro-abortion zealots who continue to overreach and not understand where the American people are on, on issues like this. And so in New York and now in Virginia, you have these people defending Literally, I think they were basically defending fourth trimester abortion uh, this week in Virginia, also known as infanticide. Uh, Governor Northam's comments were uh, essentially a defense of the idea that after a baby is born and she's alive and on that table, um, doctors would, he bizarrely said, try to keep her warm and, and give her a little bit of comfort while there was a debating society conversation about whether or not infanticide was appropriate in this moment. Uh, it's crazy and he shouldn't be in public life. He should resign. So you still think Northam should resign? That was actually my next question. Yeah, I mean, it seems clear to me that Governor Northam has no regard for human dignity. This, 35 years before he was defending infanticide, it looks like he was in a racist photo. This guy is a creep, uh, and it's inexcusable. I think Republicans and Democrats should be working together in Virginia to get signatures for a recall petition. This week, you introduced an act on the Senate floor that would provide legal protection to babies born alive during attempted abortions. What would you say to the all but six Democrats in the House of Representatives who voted against the House version of this bill? Uh, these people need to check their consciences. We we believe the reason you're in public life uh, is to maintain a framework for ordered liberty and to celebrate human dignity. That's what that's what American public life is about. So that the laws exist to protect the most vulnerable among us, and then people can go out and love their neighbor and and serve in their community and join the Knights of Columbus and be entrepreneurs and invite people to your church or synagogue. Um, That's what America is about. And you have to start with a clear understanding of defending human dignity. And that starts first and foremost with defending the most vulnerable. I think, you know, Margaret Sanger, the the original um, proponent of so much of the abortion zealotry we know today. She was uh, an unabashed racist. She had a theory of trying to attack um, different forms of life that didn't align with what she saw as her idealized conception of life. And we believe the opposite in America. We believe in the dignity of everybody. This isn't a controversy about politicians debating each other in newspaper columns and on the radio. This is a controversy about real women and real children. So this week, as we followed the controversy, we talked with two Virginia women who faced difficult pregnancies, the kinds of pregnancies being debated in bills like this. Here are their stories in their words. My name is Catherine Darty. I live in Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, I'm married and I have six children. Uh, the oldest is 16 and the youngest is five. My name is Mary Sue and I live in Northern Virginia. My husband and I uh, have two boys and two girls. I found out I was pregnant with Maggie in January of 2013. Just like with all our kids, we were excited. 
she wasn't uh necessarily in our plans but we were very happy uh when we found out there'd be another baby in the family my first trimester was very smooth with her i think it was at about 14 weeks when i went in for a sonogram that was the first time there was some indication that uh she was going to have some complications maggie was diagnosed with having an omphalocele which is an abdominal wall birth defect um where the abdominal wall does not close in the development process in utero and so the organs inside the abdominal cavity grow outside the body it's almost like a huge hernia my obgyn immediately sent me to high risk doctors and they suggested they confirmed her birth defect and immediately suggested uh that we terminate i i wasn't even out of the exam room and i know that my husband wasn't with me at that appointment so when i when i refused i remember them saying oh yeah of course you got you need to go home and talk to your husband about it and within days i got a phone call to schedule it uh that was a shocking phone call cuz i wasn't prepared for that they were real persistent right from the start that maggie was going to have serious health issues she was unlikely to survive to birth anyway i was impressed right from the beginning it just sort of the dizzying speed with which they they really pressed me to consider termination in february 1999 i was pregnant with my fourth child and at 20 weeks we had a a sonogram. Um, radiologist gave us a diagnosis of uh, that she had trisomy 13, and it was a devastating news. She had a total absence of her forebrain. She had malformed kidneys. Uh, she had a hole in the left ventricle of her heart. She was probably blind and deaf, and she had a host of other anomalies. And so that information, we went directly to Tepiac. OBGYN and, and Dr. Anderson was excellent in um, her noting to us that we would be able to obviously carry as long as uh, our daughter's natural life allowed and that the longest part of her life would likely be in utero and um, that it might not be the easiest pregnancy, you know, with this type of diagnosis, um, but you know, they were a completely supportive center for us. I had complications myself, so the doctors continued to be very persistent in their recommendations for termination. And, and, and per, by persistent, I mean weekly. As a high-risk patient, I ended up in a situation where I was having sonograms done weekly. I definitely had struggles. The fact that I had a complication also certainly made me have to think about my family and my other children. But the thing for me was that every week I would go back to the sonogram and every week her heart was still beating and I just, I just couldn't do it. But I think they thought they were going to save me from some pain and suffering by kind of getting rid of the problem and and i just knew in my heart that wasn't true the challenge came and and a little bit of of um 
I'd say heartache and um, on an unanticipated response was when I went to our family pediatrician at the time, probably a couple months later. So I was very much showing. And when I went for one of my older children's uh, checkup, I was probably at that point in my third trimester. And he coldly advised me, well, why don't you terminate this pregnancy? And when I replied um, that we would not, that would not be my choice, our choice, uh, we would just, I remember specifically saying that we would let nature take its course. And he looked at me and kind of scoffed at me and said, well, nature's already taken its course. This baby will not live long, you know, so why wouldn't you terminate now? And he directed me into his office and very condescendingly pointed me to his medical textbook. Um, textbook photo of what a typical trisomy 13 baby looked like. He wasn't even factoring in all the the physical dangers and any kind of emotional trauma that an abortion would cause for me. Abortion was never an option for, for my family, for my husband and I. And we always believe every life is made in the image and likeness of God. That's what I was always taught. That's what I always believed. Given the pressure to terminate, I actually found myself pretty surprised week after week, 23 weeks, 24 weeks, and and, and at 28 weeks, her heart's still beating. And by then I was starting to think, maybe she's not going to pass away before she's born. My complication turned into a little bit of a crisis, and I ended up in the hospital by about 30 weeks. And the doctors wanted to deliver sooner than later, and I wanted to put it off as long as I could just to give her a chance to grow as much as possible. And I still remember the doctor saying the only day he could come in and do um, do the delivery during the summer of 2013 was on August 15th, the Feast of the Assumption. And it was like, I don't know, it was this lightning bolt moment for me. I thought that's a sign, like that's a sign for me. She's gonna, she's gonna make it. And so we made it to 34 weeks. Uh, her birth was just controlled chaos. I was put to sleep to give birth to her. So I didn't get to see her and I didn't know if I was going to get to see her. So I'd arranged with my husband that he would baptize her on the spot. I actually went into natural labor at 36 weeks and we were able to have the whole family there and her grandparents. She only lived for 45 minutes. Um, All of them were able to hold her, although briefly. We are Catholic. We had her baptized and confirmed. We took, you know, pictures. We named her Angela. And so to our family, she's our little angel in heaven. The beauty of that, the memory of that, the pictures that they can see, they know, okay, you know, she was born, she lived, and, you know, we didn't do anything to change what her natural life allowed for. She was born about... 1130 in the morning, and I didn't wake up until about 6 p.m. at night. So, of course, the first thing was, had she lived? And she was alive. 
my husband, I remember, he brought his phone over to me and showed me a picture of her. I would say that Maggie's life was pretty touch and go for the first three months. She spent her first six months in, in a NICU here in Virginia. And then for the next six months, she was in kind of a step-down facility where we learned as her parents to take care of a trach, to take care of a feeding tube, to take care of um, the ventilator and all the kinds of equipment we'd eventually need to bring home. So at just about a year old, we brought her home. She spent about 325 days in a hospital setting before she came home for the first time. So it was, it was, it was a unifying thing for our family. I mean, it was extremely challenging, but everyone was so happy that she lived. They'd expect the worst and they were so happy that she was going to come home that all the rest of the complications just sort of fell by the wayside. And, you know, each day we just looked forward to, you know, what kind of progress we could help her make. And from the time she came home till this, just this past December, we've been just taking on each of the physical challenges one by one. We're now at the stage that physically, if you were to look at her, you would never know any of this happened. She's just a really cute, adorable five-year-old who goes to school every day. Um, she has, I don't want to tell her story as if the challenges don't continue. I think um, given a long NICU stay and lots of issues with her lungs and develop, there's lots of development issues. Um, we'll have challenges dealing with her, you know, cognitive and, and other development, but physically, it's it's almost like none of that ever happened. And I remember early on a doctor saying, if she lives, if she lives, it will be slow. It will be very slow progress. You'll have to be extremely patient. But if she lives, she can get to a point where she'll have a have a pretty normal life. And I think I've just recently felt like I could see that. I could see that on the horizon. Something that I think almost every mother ever says is, I always wanted to hold my baby. Anyone with that maternal sense, you want to hold your baby. So if, you know, if the mantra when you're having a poor prenatal diagnosis is, if I could only hold my baby, well, you can, you know, and if you choose convenience, end it now, end it now, and you'll be over and done with it, you won't, and you won't have that chance to hold your baby. So there is a greater sense, I believe, of emotional closure that, you know, I got to hold my baby. And we were able to keep our baby with us for a few hours to experience and, and to to be able to linger on, you know, this was our beautiful little girl that had a very brief life, just a whisper of a life. But, but the impact that I believe, I'm a spiritual person, and I believe that she is in heaven. And I believe that she was part of our family to serve as their little sister in heaven. And that's what 
um, her siblings have taken away from that. I think it's been such an important lesson. You know, I think it's one thing to be, I think it's one thing to profess being pro-life and to politically profess being pro-life, but to really see it in your own family and to know that, you know, your child, your sister is here because we made good choices. We accepted the hand we were dealt and and we made it work. And I was impressed all the way through how much, how much support there really is. I think when you get a really bad diagnosis for your child, you, you feel pretty alone, but it's pretty amazing. The resources that are available and, and prayers and the friendships um, that you gain in the process. I think I would tell someone that, you just trust that life deserves respect. Human life deserves respect. You just go with it. And the reward is that you have that baby to hold, you know, in the end, and you didn't do anything to advance or shorten or curtail the life you were given. After Governor Andrew Cuomo signed New York's abortion bill into law, a big debate erupted among Catholics about how bishops should respond to pro-choice Catholic politicians. Some Catholics called for Cardinal Timothy Dolan to excommunicate Cuomo or to tell him that he was not able to receive communion, and Cardinal Dolan pushed back, saying that he didn't want to use the Eucharist as a weapon. While that debate centered around the Archdiocese of New York, One bishop, Bishop Thomas Daly, in the Diocese of Spokane, Washington, all the way across the country from New York, weighed in. He wrote a letter on February 5th telling pro-choice Catholic politicians that they should not approach Holy Communion and telling them why. I talked to him this week. You know, before I came to uh, Spokane, I was a priest of the Archdiocese of San Francisco. That's where I was born and raised. And when the legislation was passed there in New York, it reminded me of an interview that had taken place shortly after... Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi was you know, named Speaker of the House, and she was asked about her background. She mentioned that she you know, was from Baltimore and that she was from a devoutly Catholic family. Then with the uh, Andrew Cuomo statement, it just I found it um, just beyond words that people who would profess this, this faith in, in Christ through his Catholic Church and yet take stands that are so strongly um, in favor of abortion. So I think it was the basis of that and people calling the chancery office and people in parishes of Spokane saying, you know, Bishop, are you going to say anything about what's going on in New York and what we see happening across the country? So I think that was kind of the origin of the, of the letter. And, um, I, you know, I didn't call for excommunication. I wanted to, I didn't call out other church leaders. It just seemed to me I had to address and make a very clear statement of what the church believes and teaches on the dignity of life, especially uh, the human rights of the unborn. Bishop, there are those who say that using Canon 915 in the way that you've used it, that telling pro-choice politicians that they shouldn't approach Holy Communion or that they would be denied Holy Communion kind of weaponizes the sacrament. I've heard that phrase often, that it's a way of um, treating 
the Eucharist that kind of reduces it to a, a, a political talisman, if you will. Is that a fair reading? I mean, how do you respond to those well, who take that? Yeah, you know, I, I've heard that, J.D., that, that that's what they say. I, I think we're asking Catholic politicians not to check their faith on the steps of, of, of City Hall. And I think there's such a thing about public scandal that people would not see that their Catholic faith has to shape their moral decision making. You know, I think there should be a conversation between uh, a priest or a bishop and his parishioner, especially when he's responsible for making statements such as, you know, the dignity of life. And if the person just blatantly ignores that, I think I have the obligation as the, the pastor of a diocese and a shepherd to say that this this is wrong. You know, when someone says we're weaponizing the sacraments, I don't think so. I think it's not a shotgun blast approach to it. I think Thomas More serves as a very good example of this, of being, you know, that conversation in Man for All Seasons between Woolsey and Thomas More. Mm -hmm. Why did you oppose me? I thought your grace was wrong. Matter of conscience. You're a constant regret to me, Thomas. If you could just see facts flat on without that horrible moral squint. I think that sets a, a good background and context of what we're trying to do. The church has to be very careful that in the areas of education and health care and social work, that we don't allow the state and the secular to overtake us by compromising our mission. My, my uh, motto that I learned when I sat on the board of Catholic Charities in San Francisco is compassion always, compromise never. Mm -hmm. Because certain, you know, government leaders and everything, they, you know, they won't change. They will, um, if we try to accommodate, it always ends up down a path where the church's mission suffers. There are people, Bishop, who, who say, um, great, thank God that Bishop Daly did this, but what about um, other issues? What about people who um, take a position on immigration or gun mm -hmm. control or health care? How 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 is abortion different from political other political issues? That's a great question because that is often the criticism. There are different uh, levels of importance of the churches getting involved in issues. I think the church speaks of the dignity of life, whether it is the refugee, it's the aged, the infirm, the poor, the unborn. I think that's all part of it. But what elements, what people, what groups within that context of the life issues? doesn't doesn't receive the attention the support the church sometimes is the sole voice speaking out on this issue and i think from my years of teaching and my work at st vincent's uh, in the archdiocese of san francisco which was a place for uh, st vincent's school for boys that the vulnerable in many ways the forgotten um if the church doesn't speak for those people I don't think we're fulfilling what Christ has asked of us. How does your own, your own prayer life, your own vision of what it means to be a bishop inform your, your ministry in a regular way, and how did, how did it fit into your discernment about this letter that you sent? Uh, you know, I never thought I'd be a bishop. I thought I'd, you know, spend my life as—most of my life was spent in education and then end up a pastor. And um, I have found that— um, the line, I, you often quote this, it, it was in the earlier translation of the 
uh, before the Roman Missal or the, the preface of martyrs, you choose the weak and make them strong and bearing witness to you. And I think um, the time I spent as an auxiliary bishop before coming to, 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 uh, to Spokane, I think allowed me for the first time in my priesthood, greater freedom in the morning, whereas I wasn't rushing off to teach. I didn't necessarily have a set mass every day. And I think it was that time I really came to see this as, Lord, what do we need to say and what do the people of God need to hear? These are very difficult times. I'm not one to get up. I I spoke on the floor of the bishop's conference for the first time in seven years in November. I'm not one to (laughs) to grab the limelight. That's just not my style. But I feel uh, on certain things as the bishop, you know, I have a flock of 100,000 souls in eastern Washington and I feel I have to protect and to serve. None of us are worthy of this, but we have to do what God asks of us. There have been some city council members in the city of Spokane who have pushed back against your letter and called it divisive and said that it's unfair. What kind of reaction have you gotten from Catholics in the diocese, and have you gotten much reaction from your brother bishops around the country? Yeah, I got a call uh, from uh, a couple of bishops in the East who uh, appreciated it. From the people of Spokane, uh, I just got a text today from uh, one of our younger priests saying that he discussed it in his parish council meeting yesterday, and they were they were supportive of me. Uh, my assistant Christie's told me there's been lots of people calling in supportive, but you know whenever. I hear that. I think of Jesus going into Jerusalem and they all have the palm leaves and everything else. And then he's crucified a few days later. <laughs> so um, in general, it's been supportive. The, the the local politicians who were hurt by what I said, I'm sorry, you know, I'll, I'll talk to them if they'd like. But, um, you know, we're not in this for the political opinion. How can Catholics um, stay up to date with what's going on in Spokane with Bishop Daly? Oh, it's probably the Bishop and Vickers radio show, which we take issues that uh, we're facing as a church, not always in a, in a serious way, but a kind of lighthearted, but it's a variety of things. And I think it's an opportunity for for not just Eastern Washington, but anyone who can do our podcast to uh, to find out that, you know, we're, we're trying to deal with with the topics and uh, the issues to help our Catholic faithful follow Christ more closely. And uh, it does involve humor, it involves history, but more than anything else, I think it's clear in the, in the, the four of us that we uh, love our vocations and we feel that God has blessed us and we want to um, help in any way we can to build up the kingdom uh, of God here in, in, in Eastern Washington. Well, great. Thank you so much. Bishop Thomas Daly is the Bishop of Spokane, Washington. You can Follow him through his podcast, The Bishop and Vickers. And Bishop, thank you so much for being on CNA Newsroom. All right, J.D., thank you. All right, guys, that is our podcast for this week. Thanks for listening to CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom is sponsored by spiritualdirection.com. If you have questions about the spiritual life, head to spiritualdirection.com for answers. We will continue to keep you updated about this issue, especially at catholicnewsagency.com. We'll be back next week. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. Our executive producer is Kate Vike. Our producers are Kate Vike and Jonah McEwen. Special thanks this week to Senator Ben Sass, Bishop Thomas Daly, the Tepeyac Family Center, and Divine Mercy Care in Virginia, Catherine Doherty, and Mary Sue Hempler for sharing their stories with us. Thanks again to our sponsor, spiritualdirection.com. Thank you to all of you who are listening. We'll see you next week. Adios.